Hello and welcome to another episode of the Break It Down for Brackens podcast. Today we are speaking with Kathy Kunkel. She is running for Congress for the state of West Virginia. Today's podcast is brought to you by some new sponsors, justthefreakingrecipe.com. That is a recipe site that you can go to and read the ingredients and the instructions on how to make things like raviolis and sandwiches and very basic, pretty much dude-centric, I guess, recipes. But if you're getting tired of the same old thing while you're in quarantine, this might be a fun website to go to. There's a small sprinkling of smart-ass comments in the recipes that I found to be really interesting. Um, it's still pretty new, but there should be more uh, recipes going up from what I hear very soon. Additionally, we are sponsored by GoodCompanyWV.net. That is the clearinghouse for the Bros and Bras calendar which is all of our fitness events, which are currently all on hold, but it's good to know where the website is anyways. It's also the place you go to if you want to buy club gear or bros and bras gear. There's the ability to order, I think, hoodies or to have your thing screened. Um, you can also follow the instructions to submit your own gear to have the logo applied to it also. So that's goodcompanywv.net and justthefreakingrecipe.com. We are also brought to you by my company, Brackens Painting, commercial and residential painting. We service West Virginia and Virginia. We have licenses in both states. We carry all the necessary professional license or uh, insurances, workers' comp, general liability. As a matter of fact, we should have a podcast at some point that talks about why you want a contractor that carries insurances. Others might be significantly more affordable, but working with a contractor that carries the right, the right insurances, pays the right taxes, there is a value in that sort of oversight. You know they're a legit company. Uh, additionally, we are brought to you by City National Bank. I bank with Melissa Knott in Jefferson County at those two locations. They have been an incredible asset through the SBA loan application process, understanding what moves I can make and um, just ultimately coaching me along and keeping me calm during a time of not understanding what to apply for, how to apply, and those sort of things. So Melissa not at uh, City National Bank in Jefferson County, that's who, my, that's who I go to, but all across West Virginia you can find one of those branches. So, Kathy Kunkel, running for Congress, let's see what she has to say. Hello, Kathy. Hi, Kevin. Welcome back to the Break It Down for Bracken's podcast. I appreciate be, appreciate you being on here for a second time. Our first recording um, had a uh, signal malfunction, so we had to come back to a new date and uh, re-record. So, Kathy, you're running for Congress. Correct. Um, tell us a little bit about your background, both personally and professionally. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I grew up um, outside of uh, Baltimore, Maryland, um, and I moved to West Virginia uh, about a decade ago in 2010, and um, I have been um, pretty involved in community work here in Charleston, where I live. Um, you may remember in 2014, we had that uh, chemical spill that contaminated the drinking water in Charleston, 
Um, and it was, I don't know, in some, in some respects, it reminds me of the current crisis that we're in now with the coronavirus where, you know, people were stepping up and delivering water to neighbors and to elderly folks. And, you know, really, um, it was a, a great moment of community coming together, but it was also a moment where, you know, there was a lot of frustration with the political leadership and, you know, we didn't know whether the water was safe. Uh, we didn't really know who to trust. Um, and uh, there were a lot of community meetings happening and out of one of those meetings uh, evolved this group that I ended up leading for several years called Advocates for a Safe Water System. Um, we basically uh, ended up in a fight for three years with the water company down here to ultimately get them to make some improvements to the safety of the, the drinking water system in the Canal Valley. Um, and then um, after that, I was also involved in, uh, you know, I got sort of more interested in local politics as a result of that um, and uh, co-founded a, a group called Rise Up West Virginia that's uh, really focused on Canal County um, and um, advocates around healthcare mainly, and also um, uh, services for folks dealing with addiction. Um, and it's a group that uh, uh, tries to, you know, advocate on particular issues, but also uh, try to make change in the political process at the same time. So, you know, in the 2018 election, we endorsed candidates for city government in Charleston and for the state legislature out of Canal County uh, based on the issues that we were uh, concerned about, and uh, then we like you know knocked on a couple of thousand doors and helped elect some new folks um, to state legislature and municipal government here. Um, and so that was kind I'm of sorry to interrupt. Can you can you yeah, give me no, an example? Ahead. Can you give me one an example of one of the things Rise Up did? Maybe uh, one of the real success stories that helped move the needle. Yeah. Um, so there were a couple of things. Um, one was um, so you might. And this doesn't doesn't have to do with state politics, but it was related to our uh, our work around healthcare. Um, you may remember in 2017 there was a big debate at the federal level about re uh, repealing the Affordable Care Act. Um, okay. And um, at the time, one of our senators, Senator Capito, was considered to be uh, a swing vote on the issue. Like people weren't sure which way she was going to go on that. And um, we actually. Uh, had a, a protest in her office, um, and uh, there were six folks who basically, you know, they said, you know, we want to talk to Cap Senator Capito about this, um, and we're not going to leave her office until we can do that. Um, and they ended up getting arrested because they wouldn't leave her office at the end of the day. Um, but it made, it ended up making national news. Um, they were on uh, MSNBC and um, and then, you know, a couple of days later, Senator Capito voted against the bill. So we, you know, we feel like we influenced her position on that um, pretty substantially. That's great. And then, yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was a really uh, exciting moment for sure. Um, and I think it was really interesting to me uh, to hear the experiences of some of the folks who, uh, who were arrested as part of that. They said, you know, because they were, you know, sort of locally famous uh, here in Charleston for a minute because they got you know, like our, our live stream got, I think, like half a million views. And um, they said they would like, you know, go, go to the grocery store and people would come up and say, you know, thank you. You know, that's not something, you know, I had to work. I couldn't have done something like that, but I appreciate you standing up for the community. So. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so so after Rise Up, are you still you still with Rise Up now or? No, it's it's a bit of a conflict of interest because it's the organization endorses candidates, and since I'm I'm now a candidate, that you makes know? sense. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so so I had to step down uh, when I decided that I was going to run for for Congress. So um, so now I'm basically uh, uh, full time running for Congress, which is a, a a very confusing thing to do right now during this coronavirus crisis. Let me tell you. But um, you know, prior you're, to that, you're basically you're basically writing the your own book at this point. This <laughs> you're you're almost you're writing the instructions instructions on how to do it. Yeah, and I mean, thank goodness we have so many other good candidates in West Virginia this year, you know, like folks like Stephen Smith and others who are part of West Virginia can't wait. So we're all, I feel like we're all kind of figuring out together, but yeah, there's definitely no rules. <laughs> so so running for Congress full time, um, that's got to include a knowledge of fundraising. That's got to include a knowledge of um, outreach, how to, how to get out there, how to... Um, how to figure out who to work with even. That's gotta be a real daunting thing. How, what inspired you to, um, to, to run in the first place? Like, I mean, I, I, I can kind of get it because in my community from time to time, me and um, my friends and other people who wanna do good in the community, we're able to move the needle. Sometimes just a little bit, sometimes a lot um, by working you know, politely with local governments and stuff like that. But, to try to move the needle on a state level or even on a national level, that's really, it really takes some guts. So what inspired you to, to, to get into it? Yeah, I mean, I think one, um, one thing is just sort of frustration. Um, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of great ideas um, that people at the local level have in West Virginia and that people, you know, really want change on some issues like healthcare and education. And obviously the, the school employee strikes really, uh, really showed, showed that. And there's just, um, you know, we have uh, politicians at the federal level, I think that really are not paying that much attention to what, what people actually care about here in West Virginia. And, you know, they're funded a lot by, you know, bigger corporate interests and, you know, not so much, you know, like in this, in this race, there hasn't even been a debate uh, between the candidates since 2014. Like the, the congressman who currently holds the seat, like won't even come and debate his challenger. And so, you know, that just feels wrong to me that they are not even willing to like engage in like a, a discussion of, of the ideas and like answer questions from the public. Is it, who are you referring to? Uh, Alex Mooney. Okay, so are you saying that Alex Mooney is just just doesn't give a crap about talking to you? Is that is that kind of the message? Well, it's not even like me. Well, yeah, I mean, he doesn't care about talking to me, but like he doesn't care about talking to the public in general. I mean, he's like, like you know, have you heard in your part of the district of like Alex Mooney coming and having a town hall? No. <laughs> so okay. and like yeah, nowhere, nowhere as like you know, I've been all over this district uh, in the last not recently obviously but before the coronavirus it was all over the district for six months and that that was the most common refrain was yeah we never see this guy um and that you know if okay. someone's going to represent you that doesn't seem like the way to do it right so you, you touched on um on big business and stuff like that you know i hear i hear that on social media a lot i hear that through people who are running for you know governor and hire i feel like to some extent the front line, whether it's business owners or just citizens, 
I feel like when it comes to large corporations moving into the state, whether it's to build jobs or to, uh, you know, just obviously for the placement of their business, I feel like it's really, really, really far above me. It's so far above my pay grade that I personally don't have any control or influence. I mean, besides what you're saying, like maybe six people going in and kind of protesting and really making a stink about something. For those of us just citizens, how do we control that? You know, how is there any accountability as to whether who gets elected can even make a difference? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's not so much like where a business decides to to come or go or or whatever, but it's like it's the policy decisions that we make around that. So, like for example, in the the school employee strike, obviously one of the big issues was funding um, for PEIA, the Public Employee Insurance Agency, uh, and one of the one of the questions or one of the sort of themes that kept coming up was like, you know, we've we've been this resource state for a really long time. We have like billions of dollars of natural resource wealth and natural gas and coal. And yet, you know, all that money just seems to, to leave the state. Um, you know, the, the resource is extracted and we're not really taxing it enough. And, you know, what if we raised the severance tax, the tax on natural gas coming out of the ground and use that extra money to fund public employee healthcare and thereby like keep some of that wealth here in the state? Um, so, so to me, those are, you know, really key policy questions for, for a state like West Virginia that's been poor for such a long time is how do we figure out how to, to build up and keep wealth here? And if you have politicians that are, you know, their main source of funding is like the natural gas industry, then of course they're going to say, well, no, we don't, we don't want to raise taxes on the natural gas industry. And so you know, to me, that's a conflict of interest that creates a real problem when you're trying to think about, you know, what's the economic future of West Virginia. Um, and going back to your, your question about what had inspired me to run, um, one of the big things was uh, Stephen Smith, who's running for, for governor. And, you know, I know you, you know Stephen, um, but he's been uh, recruiting this whole group of candidates under this banner of West Virginia Can't Wait. Um, and one of the central things that uh, unites us as candidates is pledging to not take corporate money in our campaigns for, for the very reason that I was just describing. So if I was to break this down to a really simple level, because that's what I try to use this podcast for, is just to, to really understand the foundation and to not take anything for granted that's just inferred. So hypothetically, if, if I ran for office and um, people were fundraisers, we'd run fundraisers, and I get big donations from companies that would benefit if I won, then I would kind of kick them special favors or push through policies once I was in to help them grow. Um, so it's kind of like scratching each other's back, that kind of deal when you're talking about corporate money like that, right? Right. And it's not like there's like, uh, like you're not like signing a contract when you get you know it's usually not like a direct like you know we'll give you money if you do x although sometimes it could be but you know you're a politician you want to get elected again you want to get that money again you know you know you, you kind of sure. know what they want <laughs> you, you use the fundraising money to run your campaign so that you win and, and the more i talk to candidates the more i'm really realizing that it's a very small percentage of candidates that are just doing it to step up and to help the community. 
I, in my mind, there has to be some sort of initiative to, to run for office, you know, and I, and I, I've never been to, able to identify that personally um, as to why I would run for office, but I imagine that if you were to get into a position of, of, of um, influence, you would have some sort of kind of long-term goal or even short-term goal of, of incentive. So I can see how corporate money would kind of stroke the direction of things to go. And um, the West Virginia can't wait not taking corporate money is, that's a really gutsy um, approach to it. Um, and I really, I like to, I like to see where things go uh, when um, some of these candidates are going to win, because they're going to win through popular vote, I'm imagining. Um, I mean, there's more than 90 of us, so I figure, like, statistically, some of us have got to win, right? Right, right. And it's, and that's a real cultural change in how things have been working. So if we were to talk about your platform, what do you think the top three things, so like when you go to your town halls before all this quarantine, and when you, when you talk to people online, like what are the three points that you're really driving home that you, that you think grabs people's attentions? I want to learn about those. Okay. Um, I mean, I think one of them, you know, going back to what I was <clears throat> saying about how um, so much wealth has left the state in the form of our, our natural resource wealth um, is really like, how do we, how do we fundamentally change that process? So how do we, uh, how do we, first of all, bring, uh, bring investment dollars back to the state in terms of basic infrastructure needs that we have now, like broadband internet and safe drinking water and transportation, you know, different parts of the state, uh, there's, you know, there are various infrastructure problems, but it's safe to say that across the street, across the state, infrastructure needs are pretty enormous and we could create, you know, thousands of jobs if we had, you know, uh, billions of dollars of infrastructure investment. And, you know, to me, that also lays, lays a foundation for uh, trying to to grow other sectors of our economy other than just uh, coal and gas, which is what we've you know historically relied on a lot. So, you know, if you have broadband internet, that can be a boon for for small businesses, for tourism, for um, small farms, and obviously those things also rely on safe drinking water and good roads and you know other other infrastructure needs that we're somewhat lacking. So. You brought up broadband as part of infrastructure, and um, I, I would imagine that depending on how long this quarantine, how long this quarantine lasts, the opportunity for um, almost like company hubs or people to work from home should really almost force the broadband into a, a really easy fix or a faster, faster fix. I know that me being closer to the DC region, so many people are working from home that bosses are thinking, why do we have all this real estate? Why do we have all this office space we're spending tons of money on when it's apparent that a large percentage of our population is able to be productive at home, which moves away from the traditional going to work and commuting and those extra expenses and childcare and all that stuff. Um, when I think of the future of infrastructure in West Virginia, yeah, the roads need work and all the other things that I don't totally understand about infrastructure, but one of the first things that come to mind are, are broadband. You know, I can't, I can't do podcasts with some people because they live 
just a little too far up the mountain or whatever the case is. Mm. They can't get yeah. the effects of connection. I know in Southern Virginia, just south of Bluefield, where I have another office, we're still running on DSL, which might even be faster in some places in, in West Virginia also. So do you have any anything to say about, and I know that you haven't won the position yet, and you're not in the position, but what, do you have any ideas on what broadband improvements could be done or who to work with? Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things that's happening, um, and one of the one of the barriers uh, to broadband uh, so far has really been that um, the sort of private internet companies, like Frontier being the big one here in West Virginia, just don't find it profitable to serve, especially the, the rural parts of our state, because you you know you have to build out. You know, it's it's not like Washington D.C. where you build a mild line and there's like a thousand people on it. You know, it's like right. the opposite of that, basically. Um, and so, um, so they've been really slow uh, to to build out any of this infrastructure. And so, what's started to happen, which I think is really interesting, is that some of the more rural counties have started to to band together and to uh, basically apply for federal funding to build the broadband infrastructure, like the actual physical infrastructure themselves. And then uh, their goal is to, to lease it to the internet service providers. So, but they would fundamentally control the infrastructure so that they would uh, be able to, to, to direct where it's going and you know, uh, get it out to folks. And it kind of reminds me back in the, in the 1930s uh, when we were electrifying America with, with electric power um, there were all these uh, rural electric cooperatives that sprang up for this very reason that the private electric companies didn't find it profitable to build all the infrastructure to electrify rural America. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, you know, helping the, the formation of these local and regional entities, um, helping them actually access the federal funds to be able to, to build out the infrastructure seems like a really uh, important piece of the solution going forward. Yeah, I, I love that, um, that analogy. And I was going to recommend, I was thinking, yeah, okay, so Frontier or whatever, sorry, that's, that's the, the boss cat <laughs> just decided to get up here. He gets involved in every <laughs> podcast. Um, so the, um, I was going to recommend, like, why don't they just – I, was, I have to have a podcast on how broadband works and why it doesn't work in this state. I understand the mountains and the geography, but I think that it'd be neat if we could pump it in on a big wire. Okay, this is, I don't know what I'm talking about. Pump it in on a big wire and then have a town or a community could have its own tower. And if you're in line of sight of the tower, to some extent, you could have faster broadband. And then that would generate the opportunity for um, different business types to open in those communities. So if a town or a, a town invested in a, on its own broadband infrastructure and owned it themselves, they really could recruit great businesses in, um, whether it's data entry or, or all the things I don't know about that I imagine could use it, that'd be a really great stimulus. So that's yeah, I think it would be huge. And you know, this is just like a really small example, but um, I was speaking, I, I met this young woman, she's probably like my age-ish, in, in Randolph County, and she she moved home. She's from Helvetia, which is this tiny town in Randolph County. Uh, and she moved there because she wanted to come home. But she's also trying to run a video production business. And the internet is terrible. She has to, like, you know, drive to Elkins to try to, you know, upload stuff 
to the internet and it's a huge hassle. So even just like, you know, smaller things like that. But, you know, we talk about wanting kids to move back to the state. We want to attract young people. And if you have, you know, whole counties that don't have good internet, it's really a barrier to doing that. You know, I'm 45 and uh, I've hit that age where I'm not using all the apps on my phone and I'm not dialing into the new, the newer things the way I was maybe 10 years ago when it came to embracing technology. And I know the older we get, the more set in our ways we become. When I look at my parents and my mother doesn't like to cut and paste. She's still kind of grasping how to share information on a slightly more advanced level using a laptop, phone, or computer. And it really gave me perspective that as technology ex accelerates more and more and more, I will, like my parents, inevitably fall behind on my, um, my ability to communicate or process. If the state of West Virginia kind of turns its blind eye and just determines that it's just not interested in making it a priority to continue competing or continue improving on infrastructure, it's going to it's going to turn into an elderly elderly state, right? So yeah, I mean it's already kind of getting there, honestly. I mean we do have one of the oldest populations of any state in the country. But you no, but I mean the state as a concept. If the state oh, doesn't oh yes broadband, yes. it's just going to be an old state that can't keep up with the times. And can't um, it, it? It's literal processing power will be lower than states close by, and why bother bringing your business to West Virginia? So that is that is really clutch, and it, it helps me to to put it in some sort of analogy like that, where I can kind of realize how important it is, and and hopefully people can wrap their heads around it and force feed it. You know, we force fed a whole state quarantine. Why can't we force? Why can't we force feed the, a whole country or a whole state uh, infrastructure focus or re, uh, recycling and environmental focus stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, clean energy is another area where our state is really lagging behind. I mean, uh, I was looking at the numbers the other day, and you know, the amount of solar energy installed per person in like every state surrounding us is at least double than what we have in West Virginia. Well, I drive through um, parts of West Virginia and I see tons and tons of uh, windmills. I don't know. That's true. Yeah. I don't know if that's a lot or a little. But before we get too deep in the weeds on things we may, both of us may not know about, what would be another <laughs> thing on your, I mean, because I, I, I hate talking about things I don't know about. Uh, but Fair. What, um, what's another thing in your platform you want to discuss? Um, you know, I think healthcare is uh, a huge issue. And I mean, obviously, it's every, on top of everyone's mind right now because of the pandemic. But, um, you know, it was a big issue uh, for our campaign even before the pandemic. Um, and, you know, specifically the idea of uh, Medicare for all or some kind of universal healthcare system. Um, so that, you know, I think, uh, you know, in, in the richest country in the world, I think there's no reason that we should have people who are who are uninsured or who are, you know, afraid to go to the doctor and to seek treatment because they're not, they're worried that they won't be able to afford the bill. Um, and, you know, I know that when I, so I um, purchase 
an insurance plan every year off of the, the exchange for the, the Affordable Care Act. And it's sort of this irrational process where every year I just have to kind of look and guess how sick I think I'm going to be in the coming year. Like, do I want this high deductible plan uh, where I, if I actually end up using it and I have to pay out of pocket like $7,000 for my deductible, I'm going to be in trouble. But uh, probably I won't have cancer, so maybe I'll just go that route. Or, you know, do I want something with a much higher monthly premium that's going to be harder to afford on a month-to-month -month basis, but will, you know, cover me more if I get catastrophically ill? It just, it, there's no actual way to answer that question. You just have to guess and hope that you guessed correctly. It's like, it's like fear purchasing. It's, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, that's really, like my wife and I, we try to live as healthy as possible, fitness, healthy eating as much as possible. We both do decent with keeping our stress levels down. We assume we're not going to get sick, but we sure could. And we sure could have a catastrophic injury or fall on the steps or it could be anything. So that it, healthcare is scary. And it's another topic that I think a high majority of people know about 3% of, you know, right. works a certain way. And, and just like, when, people, when we're voting for people, we don't know what we're voting for. And we don't know what we're picking with healthcare. We don't know why it's expensive. We don't know one, why one drug is more expensive than another. Um, educating people is just crucial on these massive topics. So what, is, what are some of your approaches? How, how, how do you change things or how do you convince people to vote your way? Yeah, I mean, I think what well, you just mentioned that, you know, why are prescription drugs or why are some drugs so expensive here? And, um, you know, in other countries, um, the government is actually involved in negotiating with pharmaceutical prices, pharmaceutical companies to reduce the price of drugs. And so, you know, if earlier this year, um, some members of our West Virginia state legislature took a bus trip to Canada and like took people to Canada to buy insulin in Canada because it's so much cheaper there. I don't remember the exact numbers of how much cheaper it is, but the point is that there's, there's no like physical reason why insulin is cheaper in Canada than in the U.S. You know, it's the same drug. It's manufactured the same way. It's just that here in this country, we just let the pharmaceutical industry get away with these sort of outrageous profits here. Um, so, you know, to me, part of having a universal healthcare system is, uh, uh, is giving the federal government the authority to negotiate with uh, the pharmaceutical companies to bring those uh, bring those drug prices down and, and you know bring the profits down to a more more reasonable level so that we're not just you know basically getting taken advantage of uh, for medication that is like literally life and death. So, wouldn't a pharmaceutical company not want to lower their prices if the market bears a hundred dollars a pill? and people are paying $100 a pill, even though they're pissed off that they have to, wouldn't the, wouldn't the pharmaceutical company be like, no, we're not gonna lower our prices, and then we're gonna give money to the politicians for their campaigns, um, so they vote against that, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much the system that we're in now. I mean, yeah, a lot of politicians do get money from the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and, you know, I mean, it, in some sense, people can pay it, but there are a lot of people who are, you know, rationing insulin or who are, you know, not, or, or making a really 
real choices that people should not be forced to make. Like, am I going to buy my insulin or am I going to like pay my utility bill? I mean, you know, there's right. that. Yeah. <laughs> I just see that being a fight that is extremely long-winded. And um, what what would what be another example of how the healthcare could change for the positive? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, one thing that's, uh, interesting to me and you may have some perspective on this as a small business owner but i was meeting uh with a, a furniture manufacturer in morgan county and he said that um in his industry at least one of the biggest uh causes of of offshoring jobs uh is actually healthcare because in other countries um the government is basically paying the cost of health insurance and so it's not putting that burden onto private employers to be paying for health care or health insurance for their employees. And so if you're a company and you're looking at payroll costs, it's often cheaper in another country. And that, so that's like another reason to send your jobs offshore, um, at least, you know, in, in his industry, he said that that was the, the second biggest cause of offshoring. So, you know, that's another reason why I think having a, uh, a, uh, a universal healthcare system where, you know, the government is essentially covering the cost of health insurance for everyone uh, would be, could be a, a, a boon to business as well. Yeah. I mean, as a commercial and residential painting contractor, which is my primary business, I, um, I have applicants ask from time to time if there's insurance and just the process of me researching how much it would cost to have somebody on insurance. <clears throat> inflames payroll so dramatically um, that as a painter, if, if somebody wants their house painted, the outside of their house painted, they might call two to four painters. We all show up and sometimes it's price driven. And if I'm 2000 and somebody else is 1500, they may or most likely we go with the $1,500 person because they don't always understand the value from one to the next, you know, a painted house, a painted house for, as far as anybody's concerned. So if I'm stuck in a market where I have to bid my work day in and day out and people aren't just coming and buying my $25 book that I wrote or something, you know, you can't, you can't negotiate the price of a book, but you can negotiate the price of purchases if you have that ability. If I carried insurance and my payroll was significantly higher, that makes my cost much more higher, which means I'm no longer a competitive entity. Additionally, um, when I worked at my father's company, we found the opportunity to offer health insurance that the employees, we paid a very small amount and the employees paid the bulk of their, um, their rate or whatever it was. But due to the entry level, the level of pay at Painter, unless you've been on the same crew for five to eight years, is not high enough for you to justify that much money deducted from your pay on a weekly or every two weeks basis. So 95% of the staff that did buy insurance inevitably canceled it within a few months because it just hit their pay in a way they weren't predicting or they, 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 they thought it should just be free, mm. which right. <laughs> nothing's free. So right. those, right. Are the, those are the two experiences I've had. So, and again, I don't understand enough about healthcare or universal healthcare, but if it's universal healthcare, I'm pretty sure we're still paying for it through taxes, whether it's business or sales or state or I don't even know how that works. 
but yeah, I mean, I, I think it would be paid for through like individual um, income taxes. And, um, you know, to me, the benefits of doing it that way rather than the way we currently do it are, are twofold. One is that it's predictable. So like I would know what I'm going to be paying uh, every year instead of like what I, was go what I was talking about before, this like weird guess of like, am I going to have to actually pay this $7,000 deductible or am I just paying $400 a month or like what, what is my healthcare cost actually going to look like this year? Um, and B, um, overall, it should end up being um, less expensive because we have, um, there's so much like administrative waste in our healthcare system right now um, because we have all these different uh, insurance companies that spend so much time just like processing paperwork and billing and then like fighting with doctor's offices over bills. So, you know, I have a number of doctors uh, complained to me just like how much administrative burden there is on them just to deal with all the different insurers and like fighting with them about what they will and won't cover. And, you know, so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of waste in the system too that I think we could eliminate. Wow. This is a, an entire another healthcare is what I envision down the road to be a series of podcasts broken into chapters, almost like a college course. And I, would I think that would be really, really helpful if you did that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's just, even if people could get a, not even a 101, let's just get a 90, a class level 90, a pre-class on just to kind of understand what we're looking at when we see something online or we read an article so we don't just glaze over and, oh, whatever they're talking about. So, okay. So, cool. So, so healthcare is another journey you want to go down. What, uh, what would you say is um, a, third, a third topic on your platform? Yeah, I mean, I think climate change is a, is an issue that's going to be of, you know, major national importance over the next uh, decade, if not longer. And so, you know, and that is certainly related to the, the first thing on my platform about infrastructure, because, you know, here in West Virginia, obviously, we've been a state that has uh, really been dominated by the, the fossil fuel economy. And so nationally, if that economy is going to decline, what are we going to do here? And so, you know, it, it does go back to the whole question of, of, you know, fighting to bring federal resources into the state for infrastructure, um, you know, to, you know, incentivizing other types of uh, industry, whether it's clean energy manufacturing or, you know, solar installation or whatever to, uh, to come here. But, you know, I think we've, from my perspective, we've been burying our heads in the sand politically around this issue in West Virginia. And that's really, not helping us prepare for the future. Okay. Um, I I don't know much about that either. The um, <laughs> I know that there's I know that there's ground pollution. It's just it's just so mega. Like in my mind, like even if I was if I had the time and the drive just to work in Jefferson County in my county to deal with whether it's pollution or I mean any of these topics like a county commissioner's job it just seems so wicked daunting to me like having to understand and try to make the right decision um, and then how to convince people around me to vote my way or to see the logic in my proposal what what experience do you have with convincing people to go your way or convincing people to say, hey, look, we need to clean up 
the groundwater so much that we've got to go into these haulers and clean out what looks like a, a landfill. We've got to stop this. We have to put in things that mitigate it downstream. How do you communicate with your colleagues? If you win, how are you going to get other people to vote your way? Yeah, I mean, I think, so, I mean, in terms of like experience, um, I was talking at the beginning about um, Advocates for a Safe Water System, the group that, that came together um, after the water crisis here. Um, and, you know, obviously we all shared a pretty basic common interest of wanting uh, safe drinking water here mm -hmm. in, in Charleston. But, um, you know, in terms of uh, like actual uh, strategy and you know what what we ended up doing was um, going to the the regulatory agency the Public Service Commission and you know petitioning them and um, you know coming up with a whole legal strategy around like what our specific demands were for the water company and so you know that was very much like a, a process of, of organizing and listening to people in the group with different areas of expertise um, to, to put all that together and make it uh, coherent and so you know, I think that's part of part of what you need to be doing in Congress is not just like, you know, I have all the right ideas and right answers, but like recognizing where there are common interests. And I think um, a lot of the uh, states that have had uh, uh, fossil fuel dependent economies, for example, do share similar problems in lack of infrastructure investment. And so, you know, where where can we come together around uh, common interests uh, and fight for the things that that all of our states need uh, in that way. And you know, where can we make make deals with representatives from from other states? You know, so it's um, I think it's you know, it's not just trying to sell people on my particular ideas, but you know, again, sourcing ideas from uh, people with similar problems and trying to to come together as more of a, a unified. Uh, group of states or group of districts that are trying to to advance uh, similar ideas. Nice. So let's say you win. How is a four-year term, correct? It's actually only a two-year term. Two-year term. Okay. Yeah. And you're running against Mooney, correct? Correct. And Mooney's been in for how long? Uh, this is his sixth year, so he was first elected in 2014. The three terms. It's funny how you get aloof like that in six years. So how do you determine if you or if Mooney are actually being successful in your job? Like, how, how, what's, What are the markers we could look for if we all vote for you and you win? How can we say, look, Kathy was successful at what she tried to do? How do we mark yeah. that? I mean, I think, um, I think there's a, f a few different things. I mean, one is just like, is, are, are projects happening in the district? Like, you know, is money flowing for rural broadband, for example? Um, you know, are, are drinking water problems getting, uh, getting improved? Um, and then, you know, I would do things certainly differently than Congressman Mooney in terms of like actually coming into the district and having town halls on a regular basis. I mean, the the schedule of Congress is such that, um, you know, there are regular uh, breaks, like they call them recess, uh, where they're supposed to come back to the district. So, you, you know, you have like 
a month in August, you have like a few weeks here and there elsewhere around the year where you're not in DC and you can be in the district and doing town halls and listening to people and, you know, hearing uh, what other, you know, concerns come up. So to me, that's the best way of trying to keep a representative accountable is like actually talking to them. Great. You know, I feel like a lot of people in office aren't coming back or not, or maybe Kevin Bracken just isn't getting the memo that this is when you go talk to your leadership or anytime you do want to go talk to your leadership, let's, let's assume city council. You're like, okay, I want to say something to city council. Oh, I got to fill out a form so I can go there and get time on the, the docket or whatever. And then you get there and you have four or five minutes to speak and you're nervous or you have to take it out of your time out of your schedule. I think that people think there's so many rules to follow to get a hold of Kathy. Like, oh, I, I got to get a hold of somebody who's in charge of her schedule so I can get to talk to her. I think at the same time, what I'm learning though is you can just send an email. You can make a phone call. You can make an appointment to talk to somebody. I feel like and I only have experience with state legislature and state senators where I can pretty much get a hold of them within two days of initial request, if not immediately. Do you, what do you feel the level higher than that is like when it comes to availability? You know, because I think, I think that we do when we're in office from mayor all the way up that most citizens just think that they're just, even though they stepped up, that they're just, they're too high up here and they're, dealing with things that are bigger than what Kevin Brackett wants to bring to the table. Yeah, it's funny you say that, because I also, um, you know, I think a few years ago was sort of in the same place, and I, I texted my state representative, or my state delegate, and he, like, texted back, and I was like, whoa, you know? Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, yeah, and I mean, you know, obviously, I think it's uh, a little, uh, you know, there's, more demands on people's times, the higher, higher up they get in the political system. But yeah, I mean, you should absolutely be able to call my office in DC and make an appointment and come see me. I mean, that's, you know, that's what representatives so, yeah. are for. And, and, I, and I know the other side of that. I mean, if, I, if I'm coming at a topic and I want to talk to you about X, Y, and Z, I know the other side of this perspective is people that are a little bit just out there with really um, like I would come at a, I would come at a topic logically and prepared and not emotional and you know that kind of thing. And you can have other groups that are just totally on the other side of things, where they're not, they're almost, they're so passionate, they're speaking gibberish, and it's hard to like reel them in. And I imagine at a higher level in D.C., it's you got to deal with a lot more of that than on a state level, and the states so much more than county level. So mm -hmm. I, th I think what I, what I want to communicate, and what I want to use stuff like this podcast is, is to show that look. I'm talking to a human here. I'm not talking to, even though you're a leader, you're an accessible leader that's still a normal person, you know? And I, and I bet being in high-level politics for a decade or more really will start to turn you in some levels. It'll turn people into maybe how you allege Mooney's acting. I don't, I don't know, you know, but I imagine, oh, they're just too hamstrung with high-level topics they're not trying to go and do town halls or to see how their constituencies are doing so i get that um if we could move on to the i have just two more little sections i want to talk about 
Can you explain to me how voting works? So you say in your district, that how are they broken down districts? Okay, yeah, so West Virginia has three congressional districts. Um, and so, and they're, uh, you know, you can, you can look at a map on them, but it's essentially uh, the first congressional district is sort of the northern third of the state. Um, the biggest cities are like Parkersburg, Wheeling, and Morgantown. Um, and then the second district is sort of a third of the state below that. And so these are not quite horizontal, kind of slanted thirds, but mm -hmm. it goes all the way from Jackson County um, to Charleston and you know up, up to Elkins and then out through the Eastern Panhandle. Um, okay. So you're, you're in my second congressional district. And okay. then the third congressional district is basically everything to the South. So it's, it's basically the Southern coal fields and hunt, including Huntington and Beckley. Great. Great. So when, when we vote, you'll be on my ballot. Right, right. Okay. So I'm running. And so in the primary, you know, I'm running as a Democrat. So if you are taking the Democratic ballot, if you're, you know, a registered Democrat, or if you're an unaffiliated voter who chooses the Democratic ballot, I will be on the ballot. And then obviously I'll be on your ballot in the general as well. What? So, <laughs> so in the primary, if I'm registered Republican or if I'm registered Democrat, I get a special ballot that gives me the opportunity to vote for only who I allegedly affiliate with. Yeah. So like the, so the election in November is like, uh, that's red you know. versus blue basically plus like you know the libertarian party and the mountain right. party and whatever other parties are out there but it's like the nominee from every party is running against each other in the general and then so in the, in the primary, primary yeah you're I'm, I'm who the voting nominee for what is. team I, i'm voting for what team i want to push forward to the um so if i'm if i'm on the democrat team i'm voting for which players i want to send to the game exactly yeah exactly that's a great analogy okay. yeah okay. i get it i get it huh Okay. In my case, though, I actually it turned out I'm the only Democrat running for this race, so you don't actually have much of a choice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That, well, holy cow, Kathy! With that much state, you're the only Democrat that stepped up to run. I, I am as shocked as you are, honestly. Yes. With all, pardon my French, with all the bitching and complaining and protesting people running their mouths online, people calling for change, nobody's stepping up. People, God, and I know there's not a ton of people listening to my podcast, but you've got to get out there and freaking make change happen. I mean, I have no idea what it's like to run for your position at all, and I'm sure it must be really daunting or scary, right? I really can imagine that. You, wait, so did anybody else register and drop out even? Or is it just? Nope. I'm disappointed. Not that you're the only choice. I'm disappointed that people aren't, whatever. That no, is, I hear you. I hear you. Hard. I wish more people would step up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good for you. But holy crap, right? I, I'm just. <laughs> 
people have really used the last two to three years to be extremely vocal, to be extremely cancelizing and 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 pushy, but nobody is sticking their neck out to be the tip of the spear, which is what you're doing, Kathy, right? I mean, you're, you're like, well, I guess I'll represent the entire, this whole section of the state. Well, congratulations to you. That is a, I mean, that's, I applaud you for just taking a shot. I mean, that's just crazy. I, I'm disappointed, but not that it's just you. I'm just, I'm just disappointed that there should be three or four people at least who are stepping up. Um, yeah, I mean, it would be, it would be a more robust democracy, honestly, if we had a real fight in the primary, but that's we the, don't. <laughs> that's the whole part. That's the whole part of democracy is to have choice. Right. Mm. Okay. Anyways. Thank you for explaining to me how voting works because every single category, magistrate, county commission, city council, they're all differently, it's all voted differently. It's so weird to me. Have you, have you gotten to the Supreme Court yet? I feel like that is the most confusing. I, I, I don't think I could explain it to you. It's very strange. I haven't gotten there yet. Um, I just don't know who's running and uh, I haven't really reached out to anybody yet. And frankly, you called me and I was like, I got a podcast, let's do it. <laughs> okay, so, um, shoot. So my next question is just for the primary, it doesn't really make sense. Maybe we'll touch base before the, or I mean, for the, yeah, for the general, we'll touch base again and, and see what the answer would be additionally. But my final question is, what makes you the best candidate? Being the only candidate. <laughs> wow. It's almost like almost like you strong-armed everybody to say nobody else is running. It's just me. It's just Kathy Kunkel running. No, don't even step up. You just, your presence I, alone. I, I scared them all away. No, I definitely didn't. <laughs> really? Um, okay, well, do you, do you have any questions for me, or is there anything you want to say that we missed? Because that covers all my content questions to keep and digestible. No, I mean, I think we covered a lot. And, I, you know, I would just say, you know, obviously, even though I'm the, the only person running in, in the primary, I would really encourage everyone to get out and vote in the primary. I know a lot of people, you know, often don't vote in the primary and just vote in the general, but we do have some really important contests going on in the primary, like for the, for the uh, nomination for governor, for example. Um, and we talked about Stephen Smith and the whole West Virginia can't wait slate of candidates. So I would really encourage folks to, to get out and vote. Uh, in nice. In um, okay, so what is your website? Uh, it is kunkelforcongress.com, uh, K-U-N-K-E-L-F-O-R, Congress. Okay. And uh, I'll search your Facebook. I'll post the kunkelforcongress.com on the, the notes and then I will uh, put your Facebook page on there also. Are there any other candidates you want to call out in particular that you're you're really rooting for? Um, you well you know I mean certainly Stephen Smith, um, Marianne Clater, she's running for state auditor um, which is a you know a position I, I think most people don't know a lot about and she might she might actually be an interesting person for you to get on here so just so you know people can understand what that office actually is because it's pretty important, and she's the only person running for it who actually has an accounting degree, which you would think could be kind of a prerequisite for being an auditor. Um, but yeah, I'm excited about her. And then, you know, if you if folks go to wvcantwait.com, there's a whole list of the candidates who have signed this pledge, and 
a lot of them are really great, but I, you know, I'm not going to shout them all out here just because, you know, they're all running in different districts and it would get like way too confusing, I think. It, it would. And, and voting is so confusing anyways. Um, if you, if you actually give a darn and you want to dig in and learn how voting works, it is, it's, it's 250 years of figuring it out. So, yeah. all right. Kathy, thank you so much. I'm glad we got through this without the internet dropping. And um, yes, really, it, yes. it, this really turned out the way I hoped it would. So thanks for oh, coming perfect. I'm really glad. Okay, really well, thanks for having it. me. All right, take care, Kevin. This podcast is brought to you by City National Bank in Ransom, West Virginia. I am Melissa Knott and manage both of our Jefferson County locations. Our Charlestown location is located on George Street in Charlestown and the Ransom location is located in the Potomac Marketplace Shopping Center. City National Bank is a full-service community bank that provides an array of financial services. We offer a range of free checking accounts and savings products for both consumer and business customers. City National Bank offers competitive low-rate and low-cost lending products for both business and personal needs. Come and talk to me or one of my team members and get products and services that are tailored to fit your schedule and help you to achieve your financial goals. I can be reached at both the Ranson and Charlestown locations. Check out our website at www.bankatcity.com. Today's intro song is called Mean in a Good Way. It's written and performed by Peter Clark off of his album, Peter Clark After Dark. Peter, <laughs> Peter describes this song as being the best song to learn hula hooping to. Peter is an avid hooper and recently started a hula hoop repair business. If you ever need hula hoop repair, consider contacting Peter. You can reach him on SoundCloud. Just search Peter Clark After Dark.